0: Good morning listeners, this is Lalitha Chalai again back at the helm after a long break and a Happy New Year to everybody who is listening. Now today we have a jam-packed program. We've got an interview with Owen Bennett from the Unemployed Workers Union and we'll be talking to the um, Australian Con- Conservation Foundation um, representative, it's Dave Swingley, uh, about what's happening at that front with a heap of um, legislations or being considered and also the dumping of nuclear waste in South Australia of course and we have an interview with um, a person called Liz who I met last night at a movie called Ice and Sky which is amazing um, she went to the Paris conference um, on climate change and has come back with lots of uh, news and was at the um, movie um, on the question, uh, Q&A panel and was uh, one of the angels there. So she had um, heaps of news that we can discuss. Now what I'm going to do is try and get um, Owen Bennett on the line while I put some music on just for a couple of minutes. That's Owen on the line, and yes. uh, good morning, Owen. Hi, good morning. Yes, Owen Bennett is, is the president of the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union. Thank goodness you rang in. I, I thought, <laughs> he's not in. <laughs> uh, okay, now, we, we're going to discuss the Coalition Bill. You want to give some details about these unprecedented powers that are going to be bestowed on job agencies?
1: Yes, um, well, it's currently before the Senate right now, and this bill... It was proposed last year, and it's been in the works ever since. And basically what it's saying is that it wants to give job agencies the power to financially penalise unemployed workers $55 on the spot for a range of uh, of offences, including not signing a job plan, um, inappropriate behaviour at a job agency appointment, and not showing up to your work for the dole or training exercise and they're the three major parts of the bill that we strongly oppose um, because we just think it's a, it's, it's encouraging these job agencies that are already dysfunctional and already punitive and already, um, uh, in many cases, don't follow the law and bully unemployed workers into doing things they're not meant to be doing so the government, by this bill, they're just saying, yep, we're fine with that, keep on doing that, keep on bullying unemployed workers, and this is giving them the major power to actually fine unemployed workers if they're taking $55 away from them, they're reducing it from their payment for a bunch of rather arbitrary uh, offences. And it's we think that this is uh, actually represents probably one of the worst attacks against unemployed workers um, in recent memory, um, certain, certainly in the last, last 20 years, maybe even since the welfare state was introduced in uh, World War II.
0: It just seems to get harsher and harsher because only I think yesterday or the day before they came up with the unemployment rate having gone up. And they were saying that, oh, well, it's just jobs that were created over Christmas and New Year now they've disappeared or whatever. But what yes. they also say is that the jobs that actually disappeared were full-time jobs. They were not the sort of jobs that normally comes up as casual over the holiday break. So that's something fiddly in there. But... My biggest concern I guess, is that the un- unemployment rate among young people is almost thirteen percent and I know that in broad Meadows, for example, the unemployment rate is twenty seven percent yeah and it 's the pit it 's considered to be one of the low socio economic belts and it 's always included in all sorts of surveys that they do on the low, so- so, low socio economic um, group of people and yet this is the sort of stuff the government's doing now you you talk about um, you know people who should get uh, in touch with the senators and so on what are the different political parties uh, responses to this bill that's going to be debated
1: well the Greens um, completely oppose the bill Um, I I should also mention there's other portions of the bill Um, another portion of the bill is that they want to increase Various penalties for um, for not um, doing enough job searches. Because everyone who's on New Start they have to look for 20 jobs a month. And at the moment, they they want to increase the penalties for people who don't meet those requirements. And and there's also the government want to um, get rid of a waiver um, for people who um, who refuse work. At the moment, um, if you refuse work. The government can say, um, uh, we'll cut you off benefits for eight weeks, but there is a, a waiver there if they think there's a reasonable sort of um, grounds for them to refuse that work, or they think that it's probably a bad idea to kick people off benefits for two months, that the government want to get rid of that waiver completely, so you have all these people um, not on any income support for eight weeks. That's, that's the sort of attitude the government is taking, but, um, yeah. yeah, about the response of different parties, so the, the Greens, um, as I said, opposed the bill, which um, you know we think is very welcome, and the Labor Party, they're they're, they're doing a, a typical approach, which is what they did with a similar bill last year. There was another bill, much like this bill, that. Um, The first fine that that, that was introduced was introduced actually in July last year. So this is not new. It's really an expansion of these powers that have already been um, given to job agencies last year in July where they said that that the government said that um, job agencies can fine unemployed workers if they don't show up to their job agency appointments. So that already exists at the moment. And that's something Labor Party supported when the government proposed it last year there was a range of other things last year that the um, Labour Party opposed, but they let that one go through, which is exactly what the Labour Party are doing again this time, where there's a range of things that they're opposing, like they're opposing the inappropriate behaviour um, penalty, they're, proposing, they're opposing the job plan penalty, so people who don't sign job plans and act inappropriately under this proposal would get a $55 fine. The Labour Party are opposing those, which um, yeah, is welcome. but For some um, unknown reason, or I guess it is quite known actually, the Labor Party in essence do support this element of this punitive approach to unemployed workers. They are supporting this $55 fine for unemployed workers who don't show up to um, work for the dole appointments or their training exercises, which is very dangerous because we've heard of many cases of unemployed workers being bullied into attending work for the dole or Training exercises that they actually shouldn't be attending. So by introducing this penalty, just just this part of the penalty about giving people five dollars fines for not attending work for the dole appointment, is basically giving job agencies increased um, powers to force people and bully people to, to work for the dole. Because if you say no, if you say, "Hang on a second, I shouldn't be doing work for the dole for various reasons," then they'll say, "Well." you don't show up, that's a fifty fifty five dollar fine. That's ten percent of your new status gone. And here's the worst thing is that if you don't reengage um, immediately, that's that's ten percent reduced each day. So the money is taken out immediately and ten percent it will be reduced each day until you reengage. And if you want to try and appeal against this fine, which many people will try and do and it's already been happening with the fine that's already introduced, um, the only way to get that money back that's taken out immediately is to go through the Stenlink appeals process, which takes three to four months, mm-hmm. so, so you're chasing this money that's already taken out of your penalty, mm-hmm. out of already, already taken out of your payment. So it's a complete breach of, of 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 your right to have Social Security and your right to appeal because they take it out first, and then if you want to ask questions later, then you know, you're know you going to have to take four months to deal with that, so it's a, well, we're really... Like the, the whole, the whole, whole proposal is completely punitive and um, appalling. Really, the way they treat unemployed workers, but they're not even allowing them the right to appeal against these job agencies, which mm. are privately run billion-dollar companies that have this power, essentially, of life and death over unemployed workers, because they can just say, "We're going to fine you for, for for that," and then if you want to challenge them, you have to go through the Stendling Appeals process and that money's already been taken out so you're chasing this money that's been taken out already Mm -hmm. and that takes four months and there's there's, there's a a few members of ours have actually already done that under the fines that already exist. Um, A member of ours um, was fined $55 on the spot for listening to music at his work for the Dole Activity which um, was regarded by his job agency as an inappropriate behavior. Yes, and
0: it's and he he
1: he completely opposed that of course and he went through the appeals process and the money was already taken out and it took him 4 months to get that money back and he won he won the appeal but it took 4 months to get that money back in the meantime he had to deal without that 10% and you know for some people that can that can be the difference between you know paying rent and living on the street yes. so it it's, it's very dangerous and um it needs to be opposed at all levels
0: Hmm. It's extremely, extremely oppressive, and it's, it's, it's the fundamental thing is the government has handed the poor over to a profit-making organization. So it, it's almost. Uh, a given that the motive of profit making is going to drive this now new, newly created industry, which is set yeah. terribly harmful to people, especially people who've got children and family to support. What are they going to do? It's just awful. But yeah. um, uh, qu- uh, just quickly, tell us what listeners can do to support um, this battle you're waging. Yeah, well, with
1: like the Fight the Fine campaign we've been running, we've had a protest in Melbourne outside the um, Liberal Senator's office just trying to raise some awareness about this issue because unfortunately it's such a an unknown issue. I mean, like many things, many of these punitive measures they impose on unemployed workers, it's so it's, it's not reported on the media and it's just a disgrace really uh, how little interest is taken by by the media in this. I mean, it's, it's a complete violation of people's rights. Mm. Social Security and giving these job agencies unprecedented powers and we're actually in the middle of undertaking a legal challenge against this sort of thing, against these fines and denying people their rights to appeal. So there's a few things that people can do to um, support this. Um, The first thing that we're encouraging people to do is call their local senator because this bill is going to be discussed in the Senate for a third reading on the 22nd of February that week, from the 22nd, I think, to the 24th, that's when the the bill is um, being scheduled to be discuss, discussed in the Senate, and we're encouraging our members to call their local senator, specifically independent and Labour Party senators, to, to try to urge them to oppose this bill for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. Sure. Um, so if you if you would like more information about that, we encourage listeners to go onto our Facebook page, and you can see the event there that we've been plugging um it's, yeah, it's an event page there on our Facebook, and it has the, the numbers of all the senders listed there, and some ideas of uh, of what to tell them. And that's what we're trying to do now. We're trying to get sort of a phone bank um, yeah. at the moment. But um, if if you are, if there's listeners out there who are unemployed workers who feel like you know, they've had these experiences themselves, um, then you can join our legal challenge against this. Uh, these fines, um, we're, we're challenging on the basis that it's a breach of natural justice of uh, unemployed workers mm. by denying them their their rights to appeal. Um, so if, if, if listeners out there are interested in that, um, please uh, email us um, at contact at com. But um, if you can't remember that, just go onto our Facebook page, uh, which is easy to find, just type in Australian Unemployed Workers Union on Facebook and um, give us a message, and uh, we'll be very interested to hear from you and yeah, listen to your your story, and hopefully we can use that to challenge this punitive um, system that they impose. They're imposing on unemployed workers.
0: Mm, it's an extremely important issue, uh, given the homelessness rate as well. Thank you so much for coming on 3CR to give us information on this. I might get back to you as you organize more activities around it and the overall campaign obviously is going to be an ongoing one. Um, So thank you so much, Owen, and I'm sorry about this um, glitch that happened before.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, cool. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Good morning, Dave.
2: Good morning, Lolita.
0: Thank you so much for making this this time. It's so early in the morning, and I'm sure you're... Oh, no, no, a it. it's a, it's a <laughs>
2: pleasure. It's an important issue, and 3CR is a great voice, so it's a pleasure.
0: Yes, and then we have lots of listeners too who are interested in the issue. Now, you put out a media release in relation to the ACF um campaign against the nuclear waste dumping in South Australia. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yes, certainly. Look, um, many listeners might be aware, Lolita, that about a year ago, the South Australian Premier, Jay Weatherall, surprised many people, including many in his own party, by announcing a royal commission, a state-based royal commission, so a high-level inquiry into options to expand the nuclear industry in South Australia. Now, at the time, ACS and many other groups were very concerned about um, this, particularly because... There were very biased in terms of reference. It was all about expanding and exploring opportunities to grow uranium mining, uranium processing, domestic nuclear power and radioactive waste storage. And at the time, Lolita, we said that three of the four um, would make no economic sense whatsoever uh, and, and would not be considered. And that we said that this was a toxic Trojan horse for softening up attitudes to international radioactive waste dumping. Well, earlier this week, on Monday... The, the Commission made its interim findings and it said exactly that. It said that there was no um, build grounds for increasing uranium or uranium processing. There was that com- nuclear power was commercially not viable. But it said that uh, what there could be enormous money in and enormous potential in and South Australia should actively jump on is becoming home to around 15% of the world's high-level radioactive waste. So becoming Northern South Australia, becoming the forever radioactive sacrifice zone for international radioactive waste. So real concern, um, we're shaping up to have a big uh, South Australian but increasingly national fight on our hands. And there is a real question now about the need for community to engage and stand up and actually actively discuss whether or not the best thing that we think can happen in our country, the best way forward, is to accept the world's worst waste.
0: Hmm. That is frightening, staggeringly. Uh, it's terrifying, actually, to just listen to the fact that Australia is going to be the the primary um, nuclear waste dumping country in the world. Now, you in in the in the press release, you also say that the the commission had stated that nuclear power is a dying industry. Now, what I don't understand is the fact that, internationally speaking, you've got India that's opened up last year for um, operation, a nuclear power station. And, of course, we've had the experience of Fukushima, and yet Japan is trying to, or maybe has already opened up one of the stations to function. And I read a couple of days ago that Belgium is trying to open um, two of. Its stations, so it it just seems there's there's contradictions in the way the royal commission has come across and and put forward a, a, a very controversial proposal, while stating it's a dying I, industry. You've got these stations opening up. I don't I don't get it. What's what's going on in the system?
2: Yeah, there's a lot not to get about the nuclear industry. The you're not alone. But let me clarify one thing. It wasn't the commission that said nuclear power is a dying industry. It was the Australian Conservation Foundation. Okay. So the Commission said that nuclear power will continue to play a role globally, but it is too expensive and too contested and is not commercially viable in Australia or in South Australia. So they then go on to say that while nuclear power isn't a, um, a viable uh, option for South Australia, nuclear waste storage absolutely is. Our, The Australian Conservation Foundation and many environment organisations' analysis is that nuclear power is a dying industry over the past 15 years, its market share of the electricity that it supplies in the global market has halved. And at the same time, leader, the market share of renewable energy sources has doubled. So renewables now produce twice as much electricity on planet Earth every day as the nuclear power sector does. And that is growing. And nuclear is losing public confidence, particularly after Fukushima. Mm. And plants are closing and costs are rising. And the exact opposite is happening with renewables. So from the view of the ACS, we see our energy future here in Australia and globally as renewable, not radioactive. But while the industry might be dying, and, and others would argue that it's not, and others would argue that there's going to be a renaissance. There won't be but let's just say that the way we see it is why the industry is dying. One thing that is completely undead about this industry and effectively forever is the waste that it produces. Mm. In a nuclear in nuclear power, you put in a, an enriched uranium fuel rod into the reactor. That gives off intense heat, turns steam to water and drives the turbine and that generates electricity. It's not really rocket science um, and then that is reliable for three years, later. After that, the, the decay in that uranium means that it's intermittent and unreliable. And it is, from that time, spent nuclear fuel on, and high-level radioactive waste. So for three years of electricity, you get 300,000 years of a cancerous waste product. It's a very bad trade. So there is growing problem around the world with radioactive waste management. No one country... 70 years of commercial operation, no one country has a final place to bury or dispose high-level waste. Mm. And that is because it is technically difficult, it is highly costly, it is politically and in the public realm contested and controversial, and no one's been able to do it. So to say that Australia, with a limited nuclear industry, limited expertise, a very poor track record in managing our own waste, can come in and be the silver bullet to this world problem and at the same time make ourselves ridiculously rich. And the South Australian Adelaide Advertiser described the money streams from this, Lolita, as mm. imagine Scrooge McDuck swimming through gold coins. Ugh. Now, that's obscene and it's also absurd and it's also completely incorrect. If this was easy, safe and lucrative, it would not be a problem.
0: That's right. Now the, the the interesting thing is uh, this this debate, or in fact the opposition to firstly the nuclear industry and, and of course the waste management, has been controversial since the 70s and 80s. I remember the days of the nuclear disarm party and and so on. But today we have two two things I wanted to, wanted to want you to comment on. One is the appointment of Dr. Alan Finkel, Finkel to as a science advisor to the government, who I believe is pro-nuclear. And we also have, um, another issue in relation to nuclear because the destruction of the world, given the climate change, the debate in that, in that mix, what we hear is clean energy as opposed to renewable energy. It, it it's a, it's a confusing thing for some people, but it's very clear to me that when they say clean energy, they're actually referring to nuclear energy. I wonder if you can sort of discuss that a little bit.
2: Yes, certainly. Uh, You're absolutely right that for a long time and continuing today, all aspects of this industry are actively contested. It doesn't enjoy broad social consent or social license. And that's been renewed globally, particularly after Fukushima. Um, In relation to um, uh, strong, if you like, institutional support for um, nuclear power, there's no question There, there are many in government, some in the Labor Party, that... um, support nuclear power. Our current Resource Minister, Josh Frydenberg, is a a strong advocate of nuclear power and, you know, considering nuclear power. Um, And yes, as you say, the Chief Scientist is a strong advocate of nuclear power. Um, Against that, Federal Labor um, reinforced opposition to nuclear power at their national conference last year, and obviously the Australian Greens have a very uh, um, strong anti-nuclear position. So politically, it remains contested. In the community, it remains contested. And probably the, the test of, of that um, is that under the Howard government, Howard appointed Ziggy Kowski to conduct a review into the options for nuclear power in Australia. It was in the mid-2000s. And he did this detailed study with full of pro-nuclear people and enthusiastic assumptions. Of course. And said that Australia could, do, could have 25 nuclear reactors by 2050. And, um, and when that came out, people went, Oh, yes, yeah, interesting debate. Let's be open to the idea. And then when some of the sites where this might happen were named and identified, there was uproar. When the idea, Lolita, turned from uh, a, a policy or a vague discussion into a postcode,
1: mm. people went,
2: No. And, um, that, so the whole idea was just shelved and parked. And increasingly, especially after Fukushima, Significant countries are moving away from nuclear. Germany is is, is actively phasing out. Japan is slowly switching on reactors, but there's still over 45 that are shut down in Japan. Mm. And there's enormous pressure. The industry is constraining, and, and reactors are closing faster than being built. Now, there is option for expansion in India and China, but even if that happens... Um, and even if it was realised, the pro-nuclear dream in those countries, two things. One, it's not as big as their scale of their renewable build in either country. Mm. And the second is it wouldn't be as enough reactors to compensate for the ones that are ageing and need to be closed over the next 15 years later. So at best, the industry remains flatlining. Now, in relation to your question about... Language. We all know yes. how important <laughs> language and framing is.
0: Absolutely. And they don't
2: say nuclear power anymore. Mm. They hide behind two sets of words. One is clean power mm. and one is low carbon power. Yes. <laughs> and you'll often hear nuclear advocates now describe themselves not as nuclear power advocates, but as decarboning oh. advocates. Energy decarbonization decarbonisation. Um, so no all of that is policy positioning, media positioning, but when the radioactive rubber tries to hit the road, what happens is people say no. And the other thing is, there is, in Australia, a real appetite for renewables. Now, Mm -hmm. it mightn't be shared at the highest levels in Canberra, but it's shared on, over now, one million Australian household roofs, and so... We live in a country blessed with renewables and that's the way we should be going. It's decentralized, it's employment growing, it's skill growing, yeah. it's reliable and it's genuinely clean. So what our concern is here, Lolita, what we've been involved in, in Australia in the nuclear industry, it has we haven't had nuclear power, but we have shoveled uranium and supplied nuclear power around the world. Yes, increasingly under irresponsible and unaccountable terms. Yeah. Now, what's happening is the uranium sector post-Fukushima is shrinking and has been hammered. Mines have been closed and more are due to close in the next two years, and it is shrinking. Mm. So we are concerned that after coming from the start of the nuclear fuel cycle, industry supporters and people who can see dollar signs but not danger signs want to leap and make us the home for the end of the nuclear cycle. Mm. So we go from cradle in uranium mining to literal graveyard in radioactive waste dumping and we do not accept that it's a safe or secure option, that it's the best option, and we do not accept that Australia is some sort of radioactive terra nullius.
0: Yes, I, 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 there's so much more I want to talk to you about. For example, the impact on the, on the First Nations people and so on, but we're running out of time. Uh, I will come back to you another time, and we, have, we should have a, 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 a broader discussion about this and more in-depth discussion. But what I want to ask, f- just to close up the, the interview, is what can listeners do to help the ACF's campaign, and are there any other organizations also involved with you in this campaign?
2: Many, many other organisations. Public health organisations, but original organisations and, and a swag of state and national environment groups. It's a great question. Um, look, I'd say first thing is the Commission is taking comments on its comments until March 18. And so one thing people could do is put a comment into that process. Another thing people could do is particularly send a message to Labor if they have any connections into the Labor Party this- don't even consider this. Labor have a strong policy of unequivocal opposition to the importation of nuclear waste, international waste, and they should keep it. The uh, other thing, i just direct people the to either the ATF site mm-hmm. or Beyond Nuclear. If you type in Beyond Nuclear Australia, um, there's this group, Beyond Nuclear Initiative, which has lots of links to also video pieces and photos and stuff. It's really good. Um, so those three things... Uh, the commission process itself, the federal Labor Party, and check it out through either ACF or Beyond Nuclear. And I'd love to talk further because there are so many issues involved. It's yes. so long, and it's a decision not just for this generation of leader, but like you know, it's for all future Australians because you can't go back from radioactive waste. Exactly. So now, love to talk.
0: If they want to, to contribute to the commu- uh, if listeners want to contribute to the Royal Commission's hearing, what is the website, or do they just type in um, what do they type in?
2: Okay, type in. Um, uh, if there, if there, sorry, I haven't got the right. I am mean, if they do South Australian Nuclear Raw Commission. Okay, cool. It will all come South up. Australia There'll Mission. also be information on the Beyond Nuclear website as well. The leader.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dave. Um, and we really—it's too important to ignore. We'll come back to you as soon as I, I get a bit more organised. This is my first program after having a break, and I'm trying to scramble all the important things that are happening. So. Good on you. Thanks for your time, and we will talk again.
3: Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. you all the best. Thanks. Bye. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. People get ready. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition
4: calls on both federal and state governments. These governments must take up proposals to fast-track job creation. They must provide decent unemployment income support payments. They must provide publicly funded training delivered in culturally appropriate ways. And they must provide one-stop mental health support services. Father Bob Maguire will launch the Statement on the Steps of Parliament House Wednesday, 24th February
5: from 11am. Bring your friends and stand with Fair Go for Pensioners and with unemployed Victorians. Fair Go for Pensioners
4: Coalition Incorporated is a 3CR supporter.
0: That was a few announcements um, after that one. I am unable to raise Liz. Now, while I can't do um, c- connect the Liz for the minute, I just thought I'll just um, inform uh, listeners about a film festival that's on, and that's around Nova, of course. It's called Transitions Festival, and it's a heap of uh, movies and documentaries particularly about the climate change issue, and I saw one called Ice and Sky, which is beautifully made. It gets a message out about a serious scientist who began at the age of 23, and at the age of 82 now, he has been part of a major project to look at the pattern of climate and carbon emissions. Liz was one of the people who went to Paris and uh, was one of the angels there. And she was on the Q&A panel and was trying to talk to her. But, of course, that, that's not happening. So what I'm going to do now is play you an interview, which I did with Daniel Nyberg some time ago, and it is on climate change. I may cut it short, but um, it's a timely uh, interview that we revisit. Welcome to 3CR, Dr. Nyberg. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to 3CR. Um, Thank you for having me. Yes, our pleasure, I have to say. Now, just for the listeners, Professor Nyberg is from Newcastle University and he's a professor in management. And that's interesting because in the book that um, – his name is Daniel Nyberg, and I'll refer to him as Daniel throughout the interview – uh, Christopher Wright and Daniel Eiberg have released a book called Climate Change, Corporations and Capitalism, and this discussion is about that book and the ideas we're all struggling with in relation to climate. So, Daniel, can you tell us firstly what br- uh, prompted you to release a book like this?
5: First of all, it's the main reason we engaged in the research from the beginning and, and wrote the book is that... Challenge we're facing in terms of climate change, we are moving to catastrophic uh, implications of putting so much carbon emission into the air. So, th- the, this is really, a, in many ways, a call to arms in the sense of first, we have to do something that's obvious, and second, we have to understand the problems that we're facing in order to do something. It's not a lack of will. Of human beings, it's not a lack of political will either. It's a particular moment in time where corporate capitalist holds a strong grip over the globe in shaping our response to climate change. And this response that naturally comes from this grip, we argue, is not sufficient. So, first of all, it's, it's a call to arm and to, to the greatest challenge humans facing. And secondly, it's, it's taking part in a, in a conversation. Uh, that we think we have a particular position and something valuable to say in shaping this conversation it's not arguing that corporations or, are evil and it's, um, or it's not arguing that they are, are, are particularly good either, they are basically just networks or contract relations instead trying to find out how they work in order to perhaps assist a transition to uh, a, a more greener a community and greener form of governments.
0: That's interesting because you also say that greenwashing is not a great idea because a lot of corporations do uh, or have um, transitioned into trying to use the green products as such to attract people um, to their products to supposedly reduce greenhouse gas emissions and so on. So that view doesn't gel with me. Can you explain that?
5: Greenwashing is basically, uh, 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 I I do think most corporations engage in greenwashing, not necessarily intentionally, but that is the consequences. Um, A lot of corporations engage in in these kind of activities with, with good intentions. But the problem is that as soon as any of these greening activities is in conflict with corporate profit, they will have to stop doing them because the main rationale for corporations is their profit. So as soon as they're then facing a cost in relation to any greening activities, then they will be called out for greenwashing, which it, of course, then becomes. So corporations engage in greenwashing not because they are necessarily mean or bad. It's because as soon as, uh, as the profit motive is, is clashing with greening activities, it will become greenwashing because they cannot uphold uh, the greening activities.
0: So, the fact remains that history has shown in the 200 years of industrial activity almost two-thirds of carbon emissions have been uh, emitted by humans or human activity, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And the corporations play a major role in that. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what is to be done in terms of corporations to reduce the emissions?
5: Well, corporations cannot handle this problem. They're only motif is to or only uh, reason for existing is to make profit to make money and to somehow internalize all the cost of their destruction would mean that it would be impossible for them to make the sufficient amount of money so they will necessarily start cheating or moving their emissions around the globe or come up with other ways to not dealing with climate change in a sufficient way so the problem is that corporations cannot handle this they can of course take part in, in minimizing it they can be a little bit better but they cannot be sustainable so we, ne- we need uh, different forms of activities we, we need arguably degrowth we need arguably strong regulations uh, we need human, human beings not acting as consumers as soon as we can instead perhaps finding different identities to relate to
0: So you talk also talk about the economic system as per Marx. How does Mm -hmm. that gel with your view of cooperation? Because Karl Marx was a a socialist, or a communist rather, and he totally opposed imperialism or capitalism as a system, an economic system. So that doesn't quite um, come through in in, in your contribution so far. How do you see the contradictions or similarities?
5: Well, I I think um, there are certain things that we we definitely can see we being perhaps neo-Marxists is that we don't think that corporate capitalists can, can handle climate change because of the simple idea that the input value has to be less than the output value. So they, they cannot internalize uh, their the externalities because that would, then have, that would have no value production means beyond, of course, uh, further value enhanced from the from the labor but in general uh, corporations are not equipped to deal with that so in that sense our political economy is not that different from marx um what we're not engaging is here is is uh, perhaps a, a a revolution in terms of overthrowing capitalism But we are suggesting, in line with perhaps what Marx would have suggested if he was alive, now we can only guess, of course, that corporate capitalists cannot handle this challenge, and it won't.
0: Okay. If corporate capitalists can't, who can?
5: I I think, I mean, the only way is is, uh, uh, social movement. If people can come together enough to, to challenge the, the system of governments we're facing—that's the only way. Uh, I'm a firm believer in democracy, and so is Chris. And we argue that this is sh- making social movements to challenge uh, politics in, in perhaps moving towards what Poliani talked as double movement, but that we had in the 60s, 70s after some environmental disasters. Then that we, we've confronted corporations with much stricter regulations. Uh, driven not by self-regulation, but hard regulation from from nation-states.
0: You come from that. Um, I had to cut short, but this seems to be an appropriate point to do so. I have a few announcements, and um, we also have to get in touch with Humphrey McQueen, who's been away for some time and waiting to get into the action. Now, announcements. The, there's a rally... In fact, there are apparently two rallies. One of the, a listener just rang in to inform us about, uh, uh, two rallies. One is the, um, health care, uh, no, it's not. The, the cuts are killing us. That's what it is. The cuts are killing us and health care austerity. And people have been, uh, keeping in, uh, keeping an eye on this. The Turnbull Coalition is reducing funding for pathology tests and, There's so many other cuts, including for pap smears, blood tests, urine tests, and so on and so on. It seems the strategy is to put the burden on the service providers as opposed to the government taking direct responsibility for doing this to people, especially the ones who can least afford it. So if you are awake, and hopefully listening carefully, 12 o'clock today at the State Library, please turn up to support the protest against health cuts by the Turnbull government. Now, the listener who rang in said that at 11 o'clock that's preceding this one, there is another rally in support of a guy who was repeatedly given electric shock treatment, ECT, um, and there's a protest in support of him, and this is in relation to mental health um, issues and how people who suffer mental health conditions are treated. So 11 o'clock is a good time to get there so you can be there for both rallies. On March the 1st, there is a healthcare forum, a profit making opportunity or a public service and this is a forum that's being held, uh, in uh, the resistance, resistance center, uh, 407 Swanson Street, level 5 and Craig McGregor, who's secretary of the uh, Victorian Allied Health Professional Association, will be speaking and there'll be short documentaries about the American style healthcare, which is where we are heading. So they are both connected issues. One is, well, two rallies today starting at 11 and the forums on the 1st of March, which is a Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. Another forum is coming up as well, which is called How to Stop Violence Against Women, False Solutions and Real Alternatives. And this is a build-up. Um, in fact, it is actually after the International Women's Day, but it's related to International Women's Day. The details are it's held at 6.30 on the 22nd of March at the, the, at the Residence Centre, 407 Swanson Street, opposite RMIT. On the 21st of February, the Anatolian Peace and Friendship Festival is happening 11 to 5 at the beautiful Coburg Lake Reserve. There's theatre, Koronduk, we will show the country and 1981 people of Koronduk Aboriginal Station took the board of the production Aborigines in a fight. So all those things will be addressed this Sunday and that's the Anatolian Peace and Friendship Festival. The other announcement is about a multicultural arts presentation um, where there is welcoming to country, ceremony, smoking ceremony, and there is uh, multi-talented Muti Muti Song Men, Kucha Edwards, Seven piece Energy Roots, Reggae and Rasta Unity, Samoan Dance and so on, and African Star Drumming, and a couple of other music uh, pieces that are added to that. Now, it is in partnership with the Warrior Spirit Collective, Multicultural Arts Victoria, and it's with the annual Black Harmony Gathering. And this is happening on the 13th of March, 1 to 5. It's a free event. On the 24th, there's um, uh, 6, to, 6 to 8 p.m., free at the, the Fitzroy Town Hall. And it's the... Fairfield Amphitheatre and the Good Deed film showing at this um, venue on the 24th of March. That might have been confusing. That actually two events. 13th of, 13th of March, you have, there is a Black Harmony Gathering, 1 to 5, at Coburg Lake. On the 24th of March, there is the Good Deed film showing at the Fairfield Amphitheatre. It's a very long um, press release here, so it's a bit confusing. Before I get on the phone to get in touch with um, Humphrey for his usual contribution, um, <clears throat> I've got another announcement which is uh, pertaining to 3 It's the 40th anniversary of 3CR, and, yay, we're having parties and all sorts of different events happening. Now, and there's um, also... If you go to the website, 3CR.org.au, you'll see a lot of the events that are being publicized. And a couple of other things, there's um, nominations are now open for 3CR's Committee of Management. So if you want to get in touch, again, it's on the website. You can ring Marion, the station manager, as well. Uh, you know the number, nine um, four nine eight eight three double seven. 8377 I think I got that right. Yes, I did. And there's also casual work available for all those unemployed people out there who wish to come and participate in 3CR and, and get the issues addressed and announced and spread. It's a good um, opportunity. There's a radiothon announcement making. It's a 45, 45 hour total work, uh, amount of work. There's gardening, radiothon coordination. Another job is training coordination and general radiothon coordination while the training coordinator is on long service leave. And there's office coordination, support in July for four weeks. So there are various um, vacancies available. Some are paid. I think some may be voluntary. Um, so if you want to inquire, I think they're all paid. But you can check. Ring the station manager, Marion uh As I said, 9419-8377. Um, but... One last issue that I feel passionately about, and I'm sure lots of people, lots of our listeners do so as well, is the asylum seekers um, issue. And the International Commission of Jurors have just put out a press release stating that Australia breaches international law in sending asylum seekers to Nauru. For those who wish to look that up, um, it's available on their website, which is the all the W's, australiaorgau I'll just read out a couple of things they've stated in this um, release. They say that Article 25, in brackets 1, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, provides everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself, should be herself as well, I suppose. And his family, including food, clothing, housing, medical care, and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or other lack of livelihood circumstances beyond his control. They forgot the her there, the female component missing. So Um, this, it seems, from the interviews we had so far, it is starting to be applicable to our citizens of Australia, so to speak. So certainly something to keep in mind. The other one is the state. It states that the state's parties to the present covenant recognize the right of everyone to the enjoyment of highest attainable standard of physical and mental health, grossly missing in our community and especially in the uh, refugee community. So if you are interested, please Go to the website, which is the ICJ, International Commission of Jurists and you'll find all this information. I'm going to put some announcements on while I get in touch with um, Humphrey McQueen.
4: For rate greater profit today. That more than morning
0: enough. Humphrey. Hello, we
4: can't we can't get any more of that in. I
0: got we, too much we, to talk about. We've been sending you
4: those other things as sort of background, and you can put them up on the on the site as well I will. I will. Okay. Um, so, like everybody else, we need to talk about the coming crash in the global capitalist system. Um, that. Um, the, uh, what I don't want to do today is to go over to the arguments as to why the crash is, um, is just around the corner. Um, people have been talking about China, of course. I just perhaps mentioned there that it's worth noting that the excess capacity in steel making in China alone is larger than the entire output of steel in Japan. Give you some idea of, from a Marxist perspective, why all this is happening, because it is, you know, one of the drivers of it is the excess capacity that builds up in a... uh, capitalist system and then that has to be removed out of the system so that it can really get started again to exploit workers and to make the surplus value and the profit that then goes on to the next round of expansion. So that's just one example. But what we've been saying all the way through since I started doing these really you know what seven or eight years ago now, what the Bank of International Settlements has been saying And in 2014, it said that all that's happened, all that the governments and corporations have done since 2007 has been to postpone the day of reckoning. And that's what we've got to bear in mind, that the day of reckoning from what has been going on in the capitalist system in the post-war boom and decline years is still in the system and it needs to, from the capitalist point of view, it needs to be cleared out of the system. Now, what would the day of reckoning be? And we, we did talk about this uh, a couple, you know, couple of months ago. It means two big things. Purging government um, indebtedness and getting rid of the excess capacity in the corporate system. Now, both of those things would have a massive economic, political, social impact on people everywhere in the world. What it would amount to is that doing to the world what they've done to the Greeks. Hmm. So that Greeks would be the model, in a sense, although each country is different because it has different um, um, internal patterns, uh, but fundamentally it means you... You drive down the debt levels. You drive, you know, you just get rid of all this excess capacity throughout the system, and that's what they're not game to do um, because of the political backlash and the social backlash that would come from it. But from an economic point of view, within the capitalist system, that's eventually what is going to happen. Um, so that's what that's what we're really confronting. Um, and you know, I mean, there are there are lots of other examples that you could give, but. You know, the, the thing that people sometimes look at, because the media keep focusing on it, is the, is the stock market. Now, we can only repeat it again. The stock market is a voting machine. It is not a really often a uh, machine that weighs the real value, the productive capacity of the companies whose shares are up there. There is a connection, of course, That excess capacity in the steel industry is why the BHP Billiton shares have gone down, for Mm. example. So Mm. in some areas, there is a real connection. But in other areas, what we're seeing in the stock market, of course, is pure speculation from those huge investment trusts who have trillions of dollars that they just slosh around in the system, moving in microseconds to make a slight profit here the move it to somewhere else. So that's what we're really looking at in these huge moves up and down mm. in the, uh, the, the movement of, of a, what they call share value, which of course is, is no such thing. Right. So, so there is a connection between the turbulence um, and that. But the big question is, why is all this money slushing around uh, unable to find a place make a profit by exploiting working people because that's you know that's normally what capital well over the long haul that's what capital is supposed to be up to and that's because of the excess capacity that is built up across the system um over you know well 50 or 60 years so that's that's the laying down what the problem is oh from there as, you know, socialists and Marxists, when the next question we have to ask ourselves is, what should we do? Now, there are many things that we, that we can and should do, of course, but one of them I want to focus on just for this morning is about sharpening our intellectual tools. I've got an old friend who was an industrial butcher all his life. Um, he's now in his 80s, he's, you know... And he tells me a story about when in these abattoirs blokes would come on and they want to be the gun boner, they want to be the fastest, the best on the line, they want to show that off. And he said some of them, many of them thought the way to do it was to be stronger and faster than everybody else to show this off. He said, of course, that wasn't how you did it. What you had to do to work faster in cutting up a carcass was to know how to sharpen the uh, knife that you were going to have to use. So the skill was not when you actually got to work on on the carcass. The skill came beforehand when you were sharpening your tools. And we have tools too. We have intellectual tools. And one of the most important ones we have, of course, is Marx's capital. But he has bequeathed us with a what we could call a uh, whetstone on which, to car- on which to sharpen the intellectual tools to understand what is happening in the global capitalist system. And that, as you say, what I want to talk about is the falling rate of profit, that, that misunderstood and misinterpreted short um, expression. Um, so we have to, in order to change the world, we have to interpret it correctly, and in inter- the only way I believe we, we can interpret it correctly is to engage in changing it at the same time. They're not a choice.
0: That's right, very Marxist. <laughs> yeah?
4: Well, too often it's misunderstood. People yes. say, oh, you know, you know, stop sitting around interpreting the world, get out there and change it. Well, true, but...
0: You've got to understand it before you change it. We've got to do it. both at the same yes, time. Yes, yes,
4: yes. That's the basics of materialist... Uh, um, dialectics, mm. that you, you have both of them, the interpreting and the changing, and you go back and forth um, from, from one to the other. But in the time available today, of course, all we can do is to look at one tiny bit of what that inheritance of Das Kapital, which in next year was 150 years. So we've got a big celebration, uh, very appropriate that it is... Uh, rising again mm. so now in predicting and I, you know in saying look we really face the real prospects of a bigger crash than 2007-8 this the you know you think oh god I say this to you and I sent the stuff off and you know I think oh god have I have I have I gone too far and then during the week I saw the Goldman Sachs came out and said, don't worry, everything's safe. I thought, oh, good. If Goldman Sachs is saying everything's safe, we can be sure <laughs> oh, that the reverse is true. <laughs> That's right. These are the paid liars yes. that operate throughout the system, and there are just... plenty of them. Mm. Some of them in academe. Mm. Um, if, you know, again, we can recommend people see the film um, um, Inside Job um, you know, to remind ourselves of, of one section of it as to, as, as to what went on there the falling rate of profit. Now, it's not possible, of course, to say everything that we need to say about that. Um, but it's important to understand that the answer to the question is not in the 30 pages in that one chapter. Mm. So people think, oh, Marx has got a crisis theory, it's in that chapter, I'll just read that and then I'll understand everything. Unfortunately, it won't. Um, And I want to go on and say some of the things, some of the reasons why you won't do that, but also some of the things we need to do to get the most out of the chapters around the falling rate of profit. Now, one of the big things that you need to understand in order to understand the chapter is that the whole of the development of capitalism, Marx says, is driven by the replacement of human living labour by dead labor. In, you know, in shorthand, machines take over the work that human beings are doing. Mm. And this changes what he says is the composition of the whole mix of capital investments. Mm. So, you, so the capitalist is putting more money, a bigger proportion, into uh, the uh, constant capital that doesn't add more value than went into it, as against the proportion of um, buying human labour and paying a kind of uh, wages uh, in order to pay for that. That's, so, a,
0: that's a surplus um, labour, uh, surplus value component you're talking about.
4: It's... Well, that's what only human labour can add. That's right. Um, the machine can only transfer. The human labour that's already gone into it,
0: into making that machine. Yeah.
4: Yep. Um So a tiny fraction out of the out of the machine, out of the uh, uh, Robots fixed capital. Mm. Yeah, because Marx says it is uh, fixed, uh, not because it can't move around the globe. Um, you know, a, 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 a huge um, um, airliner. Is fixed capital, but of course it flies around the world all the time.
0: It's a value within the product, isn't
4: it? Yeah. But that is the basis for what Marx talks about in the chapter, which people understand, which hear about as the falling rate of profit. But it's important to understand that the chapter, the the title of the chapter, is much bigger than the falling rate of profit. Mm. It has some words before those words and it's, you can't understand what Marx is saying without what he says before he says falling rate of profit and what he says there is and the chapter title is the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall so you know, clearly he's not saying that in all and every circumstances the rate of profits going to fall what he's saying is there is a law of a tendency there is a general disposition towards a falling rate of profit but it's only a tendential law it's not an absolute um, and very often I think people who haven't uh, read the chapter or indeed you know I've found people who have read it who forget about this complicated bit at the beginning that it's a tendential law again it's an instance of dialectical thinking that something can be moving in this direction, and then something else will move it in a slightly different or uh, opposite direction. So we need to pay attention to this uh, question of the tendential part of it, um, because really what Marx goes on to say, you know, not in that chapter, but later on, is that the truly big crash comes not just when you have a declining rate of profit. Because what you were asking me about before, about the balance between the machine and the human labour, this means that the declining rate of profit is a a universal within the capitalist system. It was there from the 18th century onwards. The moment they began to move towards more machinery, you have this um, operation coming in of the shift in the composition of the capital that's being deployed. Mm. So it's there all the time. And if it's there all the time, clearly it can't all the time be explaining why there's a crisis every now and again. And it's when the rate of profit and the absolute total amount of profit uh, really begin to decline. And they're two different things, obviously. The total amount and the and the sort of percentage of profit on the total investment that you've made. So it's this question of the rate of profit. Now, here people kind of, you know, some people, I know many, according to the investigations that have been done, and we're not talking here about people trying to read Das Kapital, we're just talking generally. You say something like the rate of profit, fractions, um and people say, oh, I'm no good at maths. I'm maths-averse, is the phrase that is used. Oh. That people could have got a bad experience of being taught arithmetic yes. um, <laughs> at school, and they just glaze over. They think, I can't do that. Um, you know, that's why I can't understand economics, because they talk in this kind of way to me. Um, I don't understand that. Well, let me give me say, I mean, I... I, I I sympathize with that. I mean I've left school a long time before I got over that kind of being averse to mathematics because what I'd, I mean, I actually passed math. Ap- <laughs> Year twelve. I didn't understand well, any of it. It was just well, it was just worry. you know, it was just beaten into us as a kind of ritual we had to, you know, mm. be able to regurgitate. And yes. it was only much later that I realized that it was about something completely different that no one had ever told me at school. Mm. But when you go to this chapter or to any of Mark's it's not very advanced mathematics. It's really nowadays lower secondary school. Right. There are some fractions, there are some percentages. And we all do that. I mean, most of us do that almost every day. Yeah, we go shopping. That's what we do. Yeah, without actually thinking about it. Mm. Um, we just don't know that we're, that, we're, that we're going to do these things. So there, there, there is no algebra um, here. Uh, there are things that look like algebra, which frighten people off. They are just uh, abbreviations or a kind of um, sort of shorthand so that Marx will have S and V. And S stands for surplus value. V stands for variable capital. You know, C for um, sort of all of capital itself. So, you know, when you're aware of that, you know, instead of just looking at it and thinking, oh, God, I can never understand this, you just look at it and think, no, these are just words and I've got to put them into words every time, and that'll make it much easier to understand.
0: I think majority people do understand that business means they make a profit, and and once you've got that, you're on your way, really, don't you think?
4: Well, you need to think uh, because we talk about you know, capitalists making a a profit out of their workers, Uh, but again, it's one stage more complicated than that. Hmm. What the employer capitalist does is to extract surplus value. Now that surplus value is no use to the capitalist unless the commodity in which the surplus value has been uh, transferred, uh, added, is able to be sold.
0: Mm, That's right.
4: And this is one of the reasons why the capitalist system gets itself, and particularly in the post-war period, into the problem that it now is, because to put very simple terms, the total, um, you know, output of the system, the, the the surplus value bit, goes to the employer, um, so that the wage earner can't doesn't have that to buy all the things that their human labour has actually put out there into the uh, marketplace. So that there's an excess, not just capacity in the capacity to produce things, there's an excess in the commodities on the market. And unless they're sold, um, then there's no way that the capitalist can benefit from exploiting the human labour. And the way they've solved that, you know, I use solved inverted commas, if you like, the way they've solved it is consumer credit systems uh, people go into debt in order to buy the things that their wages can't let, afford to buy because they're being exploited that their surplus value isn't going to them it's going to the capitalist so that these things coincide what mm-hmm. we now see is this massive amount of well, debt and we're also seeing now however that people know this and in parts of the world they're trying to claw back on how much consumer spending they're doing in order to get out of debt and that that is compounding the crisis in the system because people aren't buying as much of this excess capacity because the credit isn't available to them. So what we've got to look at is how the surplus value, which is the result of exploitation becomes profit through the sale of the commodities. And then when that profit's there, where does the profit go? Well, it goes to two main places. Some of it will go to the capitalist class for their own enjoyment. And, you know, they've got to eat too, so some of it will go to that, but some of it will go into having $10 million weddings and that kind of thing (laughs) as well. But if it all goes into that, then the system's over. Because it has to reinvest. It has to expand in order to exist. So a good amount of it needs at any time in the cycle to be going into further investment. That is adding to the capacity of the system. So that, again, you've got this thing of finding somewhere profitable to invest, somewhere where you can exploit human labour and then sell the commodity Mm. to get it. Back again, and that's what we haven't seen. That's kind of got exhausted in the post-war period.
0: Well, we they used up all the colonies, the, so they have nothing else to go to, and except the public, publicly owned assets these days. Ah,
4: oh, exactly. And yeah. this is, you know, we talked last year about what neo-liberalism uh, yes. is. It's a, uh, it is not a bad idea. It's a very good idea for the capitalist because mm. in practice. It isn't the idea. The idea is the is the excuse for what they have to do. As you say, they have to get into areas where they haven't wanted to go before, mm, um, mm. Um, um, health and education and places like that, yes. everywhere. They but this is what's
0: happening now, the health cuts. And uh, on that note, we've got three minutes left.
4: <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, no. Well, there are three things that at the end of this I think we have to add to it. First of all, that... If the global economy crashes, everything gets worse. Yes. Um, So whether you say, oh look, I'm not really interested in this. My interest in politics is in the refugees or in education or something, good, but if the system crashes, you won't be able to fix those either. That's right. So that's the first one. The second point is, a crash is good for the capitalist system, because it's only, this is the crisis in which, out of which the next round of expansion can take place. Exactly. You can't have it without it. A lot of capitalist firms, a lot of capitalists will suffer too. But for the system as a whole, these are necessary Mm. parts of the system. And the third point we have to say always is to bear in mind that Marx offered something more than an analysis of the capitalist system. He said... This takes place, this problem arises only within a capitalist system. If we had a different kind of system, Mm. then we wouldn't have this kind of problem. That's right. And he said, what we need is to move towards a mode of production which serves not the needs of capital, but, and I quote, the needs of socially developed human beings. That is communism. Yes. So we can end there. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Sounds good to me.
4: A, well, all, all we have to do is get there.
0: That's right, and I'll be getting there. That's the question, you know. Well, the, oh, yeah. Well, it's a slow any, march.
4: Well, okay. Well, we'll be back in a month. Yes, in four weeks' time. And, yep. and we'll see how the world's gone, and we'll do a bit more of this interpreting and analysis. Yes.
0: Thank you so much, okay. Humphrey. Thank you. Okay, so, bye bye. Thank you Humphrey and we are at the end of another show but, but before I go I just a quick announcement. There is a conference coming up between the 13th and 15th of May this year in Sydney and we have some prominent national guests appearing uh, at that conference. Ian Angus, a veteran socialist and environmental movement um, leader in Canberra, Marta Hanaka, uh, a Chilean psychologist, writer, journalist, and a prominent investigator and commentator on the experiences of social transformation in in Latin America. I think it's the first time she's coming to Australia. And Michael Lebowitz, who is a professor emeritus emeritus of economics on uh, Simon Fraser University in Canada, and many more international guests from Pakistan, Malaysia. And um, we've got our local experts from Sydney University as well. So if you're interested, please go to all the W's, socialism for the 21st century, all one word, no space, dot org. And you'll find the links that take you to this conference details. So I'm going to play a song as Asia Pacific Currents is ready to roll. Uh, lovely being back. I hope you enjoyed the show and thanks to Dave Sweeney from ACF, uh and the nuclear dumping issues and of course you you know how to find the website for that. And we had Owen Bennett from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Thanks, Owen, and an important issue for everybody. Um, and of course Daniel Nyberg, who I interviewed last year, who um, talked about the climate change issue, which is oh, really Hotting up, excuse the pun. And, of course, Humphrey McQueen. So I shall see you in a fortnight. Um, Hope you have a good week. And turn up to the rallies today at uh, the State Library from 11 onwards. Goodbye.